Welcome to Biblical Truth. My name is Andrew Damon. Thank you so much for pressing play. Guys, today we're turning it over to our TikTok live stream. This is going to be a answering your questions via TikTok live stream. So we're currently live on TikTok. Your other TikTok account. Oh, I see. So we were talking about uh, video games and my, my video game videos that I had. Uh, which, you know what? I may post more of those, but my YouTube channel. Actually, I'm going to be posting one on my YouTube channel. Um so we'll have to see. You have a YouTube? I do. I do have a YouTube. My YouTube, actually, I will let you know what it's called. Uh, it is just called No Matter What. No Matter What. Nomad dash er dash what. No Matter What. Uh, excuse me. When's your birthday? December 20th. Uh, let's see. Where would you recommend someone start with their Bible study? This is a good question. I feel as though that if you are going to study scripture on a level, uh, not just of interest, but of like deep theology, sort of understand it from the, the, the basis of the beginning. Um, I would say start from the beginning. I, I don't know necessarily who said it best, but I do know that the best way that you can understand the reasoning behind Christ's death and the reasoning why things are the way that they are is to start from the beginning. I mean, you never open up a novel in the middle. You know what I mean? These are all, it's a chronological order of, of books and you got to understand it from uh, the beginning. Otherwise, you won't know how the middle pertains to the end and whatnot. How you got into religion. So I do want to make this very clear that I, I don't think that Christianity, rather true Christianity, is a religion simply because it differs from the normal way that people would act upon religion. Typical religions are about how you can do well for yourself and how you can bring good things, whether it's peace or prosperity or whatever, to uh to, I guess, the, the bringing it to the understanding of yourself. You know what I mean? Like, you have all these different mindsets. Like, you have uh, Buddhist, which is the, very much around, like, oh, just inner peace and bringing this, this knowledge of, of how, to, how to calm yourself and how to do this. And it's very just a peaceful type deal. We all need to love one another and all that. But they don't have a basis for where love comes from. They don't have a, a basis for the understanding of morality. They don't have a basis for these these things. And if they do, it's very vague and not very large uh, in sort of the wealth of knowledge. It just comes from a self a self help type deal. You know what I mean? And that doesn't that doesn't serve to do anything but uh, keep you where you're at while simultaneously treating people as if it's some sort of like. Uh, marijuana bar almost it's like a let's just sit around and be happy you know what i mean like there's no active participation in literally changing someone's life based off of the the true deep knowledge and understanding of love but you have other religions like islam like judaism that judaism is based a lot on tradition it's based off of what others before did 
it's not based off of what the truth of it, you know, what the truth of it is now. What, what the truth of it, you know, is now. It, it's not. It's not about uh, a fact or a, a, a an indication that there is something to be working for. There's something that we're striving towards. It's simply based off of there. There is a a God, and there is. I don't know. There's massive dif- disagreements and lots of different the- uh, these different things. But going back to Islam, especially, you have Islam, and it's almost entirely based off of again the tradition of what we believe, based off of the forceful enslavement and the the horrible things that the starter of all of it, Muhammad, did, and you know, just awful. I would say the 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 basis for islam <clears throat> is about as logical as the basis for the flat earth it is completely based off of assumptions taking things that we know to be true and saying that they're not true saying that like whole families being renounced children being renounced because their their parents said you believe in islam or not or you're no longer my child like that sort of mentality is what happens there's massive amounts of persecution over in that part of the world and it's it's a huge deal <clears throat> but uh, somebody says, what's wrong with that? Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about the Buddhist comments about just love and peace, because when you have love and peace, you don't talk about the awful nature of humanity. When you, when you, when you go into the, the religious sector with the ideal that everybody's basically good, you completely negate the truth of human, the human depravity. You completely negate the truth of how we actually are as humans. Not only that, but you're trying to cover up the truth of what humans are. By saying, no, we're, ba- we're basically good. We're basically good. I don't understand how anybody can rationally look at a human person from the moment of birth to the, the time of death and say that they were basically a good person. It, you have to rationally think about it in the realm of you have to go out of your way to be a good person. You have to genuinely do the work to do what is good and right. And the Bible talks about it in great length in the, in the realm of no person is good. There is no person on this planet that is legitimately good. We are all horrible and we have to be taught how to do good things. This is the nature of humanity. You don't you don't come out of your mother's womb happy. You come out of your mother's womb crying because you either need something, you are in desperate need of a hug or uh um uh, you know I wouldn't say a hug, actually, because that pertains to love and whatnot. I'd say as a baby who doesn't know what's going on, you either need something. You need to be fed. Can you imagine what it's like to be hungry? That's not a, that's not a loving feeling. That's an awful feeling. But even as, a, as, a, as an older child, I have a couple of nieces and nephews, and they all are in that age bracket of like one or younger than one all the way to like 11, maybe nine, nine to 10 years old. And do you know how often they do horrible stuff? You, they do, they are not told, oh, oh, talk back to your mom. Oh, I told you to come over here because you're about to run into the road. Yeah. And you didn't do that. Yeah. Go ahead and keep doing that. No, no, no. You don't have to be told to do the wrong thing. Our natural way is to do the opposite of what is the right thing to do. And you can't genuinely look at a human being and say that that's not the case. If you are seriously the type of person who says that we're all good, basically good, how can you say that? What's the standard of good? And if that's if if your standard of good is not doing something that's wrong, 
I challenge you to look at the the life of a of a very young child who has not been taught anything yet. They've just been fed and clothed and changed, and that's it. They haven't been taught how to do anything. They still are going to do things that you should not do. You're saying we need religion in order to be good? No, I don't think you need religion in order to be good. What I think you need is God, and that's the difference. I was talking about this earlier is the difference between religion and a relationship. Is Christianity is the only belief out there. There's a broad spectrum of beliefs, thousands of beliefs, but Christianity is the only one that looks at you and says, you are horrible. You need, you need something in order to meet the standard of moral good. And that talks about morality and nobody has a basis. No, no atheist or non-Christian has a basis for morality that is genuine in the sense of describing how things came to be or rather, who the standard is for the truth of morality. So, for instance, Buddhism, Hinduism, they mention how, oh yeah, all th- like you know, these things are good, or or maybe a, a certain like Islam. Let's go with Islam. Islam, you have Allah, which is you know God. He is not triune; he is just one God. So you have Allah. Great. Does he teach you the right from wrong? Sure, but in what in what instance? Christianity, by definition, is a religion. Okay, that's that's fine if you want to believe that, but how does it act? How does it? I'm talking about true Christians. I'm not talking about the uh, following because someone said so. That's a lot of people who proclaim to be Christians. I'm talking about those of us who decide to be in a relationship with Christ. How do you pertain that to religion if it goes against the very nature of what religion means? which is just to be under something and 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 believe it because you've been told to and whatnot. That's the basic ideology. That's a basic understanding of religion is I said so, therefore you do it. And Christianity, that, that it doesn't come from that mindset. That's not the way that they go about it. They We do do, you know, there is obedience to God, but that doesn't come from the fact that God said so. It comes from the fact that we want to obey. There's a, a desire there. Desire comes from a deeply rooted understanding of relationship. So I'm saying, what other religion out there can you actually associate with an actual relationship status? You say, yes, you can. Can you give me an example of this? An example of morality from the atheist perspective. I'm very curious what you think of, what what your perspective is on this. Of a deity. Oh, by that by that definition, yes. But we don't operate based off of uh, the the notion of believing in God simply because He's there. You know what I mean? I that you can believe that something is there, but not have faith in that thing. I mean, like look at look at the idea of Satan in Christianity. Satan knows God exists, but he does not believe in Him. He does not actually trust in Him as Lord and Savior. There's a massive difference between acknowledgement and belief in. So. Again, religion and and relationship are massively different. Because I can acknowledge my son, I can I can acknowledge my child, but I don't necessarily have to believe in my child. You know what I mean? No, I'm not asking what you consider to be morally good. I'm saying, if you are indeed an atheist, how can you acknowledge morality without God? Right? Yeah, I'm I'm not going to assume. Let's go ahead and, and start with. Uh, let's go ahead and start with, are you, are you an atheist? Let's start with that. 
even though that thing doesn't exist, you can observe your child. He's real. I'm not saying you can't observe your child. I'm saying you can observe your child. I can acknowledge that my child is real, but I don't necessarily have to believe in him. Like, I don't believe that my child will do good things or bad things or whatever. Don't be a jerk to people. Simple. But pagans are a jerk or, you know, can be nice to people. So what makes you different than a pagan? Yep. Okay. So you're an atheist. So if you're an atheist, how can you rationalize moral good without God? Who determines moral good? We'll start with that. Who determines, and I, I, I want to be specific here. It's not subjective moral good. It's objective, meaning the truth that no one can change. We do. Well, who's we? We determine moral good. Common sense determines moral good. Okay, so who's we? Make this very specific. There is no objective moral good. So are you saying from a certain perspective, Hitler was right to kill the Jews? Is that what you're saying? And you, you can't logically say that because that would make you a horrible person. And you know that. So was Hitler right to kill the Jews? And if you say, well, in some aspects, not at all, LOL. Well, that's not true because some people think that he was right. So what you're basically saying is that your moral compass is just as accurate and just as reliable and just as believable and just as correct as the person who thinks that it was okay. This is where you get into a, a, a realm of morality. In order for objective morality to be true with a race of people who are consistently changing what morality is, you have to have one being that determines what the truth is and that requires God. Social social construct is not does not determine objective morality because if that's the case, then Every society that affirms rape, that affirms murder, that affirms bestiality, that affirms all of these things is in some fashion true and accurate and right because they believed it. That's not how, that's not how it works. There has to be somebody outside of, of this constantly changing thing. There has to be an unchangeable truth. That unchangeable truth can be humanity because humanity is always altering what they believe. Just like science, you can't just believe one thing and then say a different thing unless it's discovered to be true, and that means they got it wrong before. So it wasn't true before now. It's like it's like when they discovered, say the whole Earth thought that the Earth was flat, which was actually a belief. The idea at one point in history was that the Earth was flat because it looked flat. Then how in the world can we, as a determining race, look and say, hey, oh yeah, the Earth is actually a globe, it's a ball. Well, that means it's not flat. That means what we believed before was not true. So you have to either admit that or you have to still believe it's a flat earth and while also believing that it's a ball. Otherwise, there's no... If both of them are true, then they cancel out each other because it's neither a flat earth nor a ball. But if they're both true, one of them has to be wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? You are word salad. It's, there's not multiple meanings. Morals are based on our values. Well, the value of Hitler was to kill the Jews. Was he right? Was he right? And if not, where is your basis for this? Do you, okay, let me ask you this. Do you believe that there is a, a version of humanity in some multi-dimensional place where killing the Jews by Hitler was a good idea? Like, do you believe that that in some fashion was a good idea? Or do you believe that it was 100% wrong, no doubt about it, absolutely? 
To me, he's wrong. I'm sure he thought he was doing the right thing. No, no, no. I'm not asking you if he did, if he thought he did the right thing. I'm saying, do you believe at the end of the day that that was okay to do? Do you believe that? And if your answer is no, I personally don't. Okay, you personally don't. But how do you know that that's true? How do you know that your personal belief is accurate if it's all subjective? You're either somehow wrong or could possibly be wrong or he was somehow possibly right. And if you don't believe he was right, how could you be how could you be right if he was right? How can you be right if Hitler in some fashion, which is subjective, is right? How is that possible? This is this is I'm 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 asking atheists everywhere to come head to head with their own way of thinking. Didn't say it was. I said in my opinion it's wrong. Okay. So, but your opinion means nothing because it's subjective. It's not true. There's nothing about it that's actually accurate. Personal truth is not actually truth. If I say, well, in my mind the sky is green. Sky is green. So if the sky is green, that's my personal truth. Am I am I right? Am I actually right? See, atheists don't have an understanding of this because they consistently will say that something is true. This is how we got into the whole thing about like, oh, you can become a man even though you're not a man. By your chromosomes, by your blood, everything determines you as a specific gender and you are going to sit there and say that that's not the case. How can you actively look at that and say that's not the case? Atheists don't want truth. Nobody wants truth. I'm not arguing over a fact. Okay, let's let's argue over a fact then. Is the action of Hitler killing the Jews bad? Is that bad? How can you prove morality to be objective? An undeniable truth. An undeniable truth that has been proven to be accurate. What is truth? The truth is something that is completely and utterly right in every way, shape, or form and cannot be under any circumstances in someone's right mind altered to be something else. Nobody will look up at the sky and in our understanding of society, look at that sky in the middle of the day and say, the sky is red. Nobody does that because either you don't know what blue is, you don't know what red is, or you're just not able to see properly because everybody understands the sky to be blue. That is not a fact. That's not, that's not an, un that's an undeniable fact. Okay. Now, as for how the sky is blue in science and how it happens, is the sky actually blue based off of the light that transforms through the atmosphere and all that? We get it. I'm just saying in our eyes, it looks blue. What is the color of the sky? It's blue. Like me, I have a red Hyundai Elantra outside. I have a, I have a, like a, like a fire truck, red Hyundai Elantra sitting outside that wall. How in the world can I sit there as a human being and say genuinely that that vehicle is blue? I can't because it's it's undeniably red. If God thinks killing firstborn babies is moral, then I am a monster for saying it's wrong. First of all, you you must do you do you understand? And this is this is in the realm of of one of the the atheist arguments that I used to use quite a bit when I was an atheist, and that's when I'm on the hot seat, I turn things around to the Christian. 
and make it more uncomfortable for them or rather try and put them in a position where they can't answer it or ask me to believe in something that I don't believe in. I do not believe that God killed or rather murdered firstborn babies, okay? The firstborn child in Egypt, all the killing, why was that done? Why was it done? Why does, it, why does the Bible say that it was done? And please note, we're not going based off of your moral compass. We're going based off of God's. I don't determine things based off of my moral compass because my moral compass is fallible. You are deflecting. You. N no, ma'am. I'm not deflecting. I posed a question in answer of his question. That is called an answer. Whose moral compass are we basing the Bible off of? Are we basing it based off of our own interpretation or God's? Because based off of God's moral compass, he is allowed to determine what he can do with his own creation. Why in the world would, you, would, would I be in my right to come up to you and something that you've created and say, you cannot do this with that? You're going to go, no, I created that thing. I can do that. I can do that. So again, explain to me why God is not allowed to kill who he, he wants for specific reasons. And none of them are unjust as we are all awful people who deserve death. So explain to me based off of your logic and your understanding why him killing those children is wrong. Proof of objective morality. I, I'm not able to prove objective morality to you because everybody's perspective is to base everything based off of their own belief. You answer why it's okay. My belief as to why it's okay for God to kill children is because it's his creation. Nobody's allowed to determine what God can do with his own things. Why would we do that? And they're not done off of horrible reasoning either. Like take Noah, for instance. God says that he, he killed every person on the planet except for Noah and his family because every intention in the heart of those people was to do wicked things. Now, if you understand what God is and how God is and how God acts, an act of rebellion against God is worthy of death because you are a, a dirt-created creature that is sinful and horrible acting against a holy, perfect, eternal God. So the punishment for that, obviously, is an eternal death. So explain to me how that's not rational. In the eyes of an atheist, it won't be. I understand this because I used to be one. I'm asking, how can you rationalize a true understanding of God and reject the notion that God can do what he wants with his creation? Or a parent and their child. So the idea of a parent and their child, the parents do not create the children, at least not in, in my eyes. You can sit there all the live long day and say that, oh, you know, we created the child because it came from both of us. Well, in, if you don't have one of those things, the, it's a hard topic to talk about. It's, it's, you can't really talk about the birth of babies in the eyes of a, an atheist. And it's very obvious that you can talk about the birth of children in the eyes of an atheist and completely disclude God because you don't believe in God. That's an obvious thing. But when you're a believer in God, you obviously bring him into it because I believe, or rather Christians believe that none of it's possible without God. Zero evidence of experimentation. So one of the reasons why you might think that, one of the reasons I thought that years ago is because the answer to all the things that are unexplainable 
can be easily explained by a being that can do all things. If you have a being that can do all things, the answer is quite simple. How did God create the universe? How did that happen? How did that? We don't know how it happened. We don't know where, where God's power comes from. We only know it comes from him. And what does that mean? Well, we can't, we can't bring that down to a human understanding because that's not, that's not, our brains are not capable of understanding that concept. That's where faith comes into play. That's where there's, there's a reason why Peter says in the New Testament, now we know things in part, meaning we only know a little bit. But in heaven, when we depart from our bodies and whatnot, in the Christian belief, then yeah, you, we're going we're gonna to understand more and more. And we're going to understand the ultimate understanding of it because we are one with God at that point. Now, this is all mumbo jumbo word salad to the atheists of, you know, those who don't believe. And I totally get that. But at the same time, the, the belief in Jesus Christ, the belief in God, this is really where it stems from. We can talk about morality all the live long day. And I want to kind of bring this back to it. A lot of people who are atheists, they'll, they'll say like, oh, I want to believe based off of evidence. That is the natural way that humans work. We do things based off of evidence. And I totally get it. And I run my life like that a lot. And I probably shouldn't because it's not always how things work. But there's a reason why the Bible says faith is the belief of, or rather the proof of things unseen. The idea of like, okay, I have a lock on my door, right? Now I've lived in this house for over a year and I have never had my house broken into. And I have faith in my lock on my door that it will not be broken into. Does that mean it will never be broken into? No, but it does mean that my door won't open unless something hits it hard enough to break it open. You know what I mean? Like, there's certain things that we place our faith in. I have faith that my car won't be there tomorrow, or rather my car will be there tomorrow. Does that mean that it won't get stolen? No. But what that does mean is that I have faith in that thing. That's that's literally all it means. I have faith in that thing. Faith is not necessarily always the proof. There are some things that faith is not proof to. But in the realm of Christianity, okay, in the realm of, of the faith in Jesus Christ, right, we believe that Jesus was a real human being. There's nobody outside of, of like, once, what, what, is, what did Dr. Barterman say? Once you get out of your conclave, there's, there's nobody. This is not even a debate in, in biblical history, the idea that a man, Jesus, was alive. Point is, this man, Jesus, it's, it's historically understood that, that Jesus was a real man. So it's not about whether Jesus was a man or not, it's, or rather a human being. It's about is he who he claimed to be? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be God in a human form. He supposedly died on the on a cross, which was an ancient Roman torture method of death. And the understanding as of history was that if you get put on the cross and you die, or rather, if you get put on the cross, you will die. You don't come off of that still living. So we know that he at least died on the cross because he was put on the cross, just like the thieves next to him. Um, so how, how does one account for the eyewitness testimonies of those who saw him resurrecting? The Bible is not just a bunch of people who got together in a room and said, oh, uh, we, we want to make up this religion. A lot of people think, um, a lot of people think that that's what Christianity is. But in fact, it's 66 different books written by over 40 different men from three different continents and three different languages. There was so much space in between all of these books being written, it's impossible for any of them to have collaborated. Um, so if you have all these different perspectives, all these eyewitness testimonies, all these people who witnessed and saw things and they're writing things down, and then at one point in history in the Council of Trent, they put all this stuff together and say, this is the Bible. That's how the Bible came to be. So 
it's 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 incredible. One of the one of the main thing, one of the main focuses in history, or rather the the understanding of history, is that the Bible, or rather the affirmation of some of these books being written from a historical standpoint, is actually from that perspective, it's actually a, in in complete and utter agreement with what they found. Yeah, I mean, people have gone out and looked for things in certain areas that the Bible says it was, and they found exactly what the Bible says is there. You know, people will often look at things like, um, uh, there's things like the Ark of the Covenant. We know that to be an actual historical fact or rather an, an artifact. There's plenty of artifacts. There's different tablets and papyrus scrolls. There's different things like people will often look at like the Dead Sea or rather the Red Sea, whatever it was called. I think it was called the Dead Sea. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And they look at uh, the story of Noah and how the sea parted and all that. And, and they go down and they, they, they scuba dive into the Dead Sea and they find wagon wheels from chariots. And then the atheist community will say that that's not true because of a, a hot take article they read that had no basis for what they believe besides I'm an atheist and I don't want to believe in this. So they, they say it's not true, but you look at the wagon wheels, you look at the art on the wagon wheels, you look at the spokes that were said to have been on the wagon wheel, it's exactly the same number of spokes that was in the Dead Sea wagon wheel. You look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find all of these different uh, accounts of different things happening. You have, <coughs> excuse me, you have uh, ancient Chinese documentation in history. Ancient Chinese documentation is the most reliable as far as the uh, knowledge of the sky and the stars and the alignment of stars and the sun and the moon and all that. Uh, part of a certain dynasty over the course of 150 years, there was a dynasty in China called the Han dynasty and the Han dynasty. There was a whole book written about it. And uh, around the proclaimed date of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in the Bible, it says that the sky went dark and there was massive earthquakes all over um, in the Han dynasty book. It documents that there is, there was an entire eclipse that went that turned the sky dark during that same time frame of that year when Christianity proclaims in Scripture that that happened. Not to mention the fact that Christianity proclaims that there was a star that led the three wise men to the 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 cradle where Jesus was being birthed in, and on that same day, which is before between four and six BC, um, King Herod was still in reign. We understand this from the the Chinese textbooks. We understand this from that over 3,000 miles away, there was a star that burned in the sky for 90 whole days. And it burned in both the day and the night. And that is what is proclaimed in scripture. You have you have all of these different perspectives and people don't want to look at it because they don't want to believe. This is why the Bible says that the, the doorway is narrow. The, the, you know, the pathway is very narrow because the natural inclination is to deny what is true. The natural inclination is to deny the accuracy. And that's the thing. Nobody comes to the Father on their own. They're all led to, uh, they're all led by, by God. And if you have not come to an understanding of, uh, of your faith in Jesus Christ, or rather that's not something you have, the only way that you can have that is by the Holy Spirit. And that's why a lot of these, these, uh, live streams that I do is more geared towards a topical conversation about what we believe and how we believe it. Because my job as in Matthew 28, 19 is to, is to tell people about it. It's not to prove it to you guys. You know, my job in Christianity, nowhere in scripture does it say, Hey, go prove that God exists. Go prove that Jesus died on the cross. Go prove these things. It's just to tell you, it's just to plant the seed. That's it. And I don't want to make you a Christian. I want to convert you. That's not my job. You can't force a person to believe. I exactly. Nobody, nobody can force. Absolutely. That's the thing. I didn't become a Christian because my parents taught me that. 
I didn't become a Christian because my, uh, my church taught me that. In fact, I was an atheist for 15 years and I, I renounced all of that stuff despite being born in a, in a Christian home. And it was just an awful thing. But once I started to, I, it's like one day my interest was piqued and that, that all that glory goes to the Holy spirit because that's not anything that I could have done on my own. So rather not that I want to convert you. I don't want to convert you. I want you to believe because you know it to be true. I want you to come to Christ because Christ loves you and he's asking you to come to him. The call for everybody to be saved, which is which is what the Bible talks about, is for every person. So my hope is that everybody will be saved. Everybody in this group chat will be saved. But that can't happen unless the Holy Spirit decides to, you know, come in. But he's also going to knock at your heart. He's also going to put you in positions that make it undeniable. And sometimes that doesn't happen immediately. But yeah, my, my door is always open for answering questions and whatnot. It's simply a, it's, this is, my goal is not to convert people. My goal is to tell you what I believe to be true, the truth of Jesus Christ, and explain to you in the best way that I know how, because the Bible says to be right with an answer, to explain to you the best way that I know how, why it's true, and let God do the rest. That's it. That's all I'm here for. So, you can't even discuss an uncomfortable question. What uncomfortable question are you talking about? There's so much to know that I know to be true that suggests God does not exist. Okay, well, what, what are those? You haven't explained why it's true. Well, that's the thing. Why, why something is true... You can you can talk a live long day about historical accuracy and all that kind of stuff, but if do you believe? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. And not judgment. Yes, I agree. Um, let's take Noah's Ark for instance. Okay, the, no atheist out there is going to sit there and believe that Noah's Ark is real. Okay, Earth is not six thousand years old. I'll tell you what. In the Christian community, some people hone in on that. I personally, as a Christian, do not care how old the Earth is because I don't. I wasn't there. I don't know how old the Earth is. The Bible never says how old the Earth is. Um, that is a massive assumption made by Christians, and they have certain things that kind of map out why they believe that. I don't necessarily find any legitimacy in that, but that also is not something that determines my. Um, my faith. You know what I mean that too. Noah's Ark is unscientific. So Noah's Ark is actually one of the most scientific things on the planet. If, if you look, there's actually quite a few videos done on it where they test it and they actually prove it to be as, as plausible as anything else. Um, uh, but let's not talk about how Noah's Ark, uh, what happened. Let's talk about your doc is cute. Thank you. Um, let's talk about, uh, the fact that Noah's Ark, do you, do you believe that Noah's Ark was found on a mountaintop in Turkey? Do you believe that? Can Ham tell you that? No. Ken Ham did not tell me that. See, but you reject you reject the notion of of it being a scientific thing, but yet have you actually looked at the videos that prove it? Have you looked at the videos that demonstrate it? It literally has a model of the arc that they they weight it out and they do the calculations and they show it. And it's accurate. Putting putting a little toy boat in a tub and then splashing everything around does not necessarily prove that it doesn't work. You have to have it under the right conditions from the biblical standpoint. 
who made those videos. I'd recommend going on YouTube. I, I can't give you necessarily a specific name, but I can give you... Um, let's see... There's plenty of them. There's lots of them. There's um, Science Confirms Noah's Ark and the Flood. 103, or rather, one hour and three minute video done by Answers in Genesis. There's a video on YouTube. Now, I guarantee you that uh, the the vast majority of you will probably go to a bunch of other people like Bill Nye who did a Bill Nye destroys Noah's Ark. It's a four minute video. I guarantee you he did not take four minutes to destroy Noah's Ark. It's probably an edited video, but the vast majority of you won't look this up. The vast majority of you will not actually pertain or rather, uh, not pertain, but actually do any research about this. The amount of people out there, um, actually I want to read a little bit. Uh, let's see. There's quite a few good articles out there that talk about the flood. Uh, worldwide flood evidence. There's quite a bit. Um, so a lot of people will uh, do things based off of an assumption. Science is almost entirely based off of an assumption. I want to make I want to make this very clear. Not all of science is based off an assumption, but a lot of it is. A lot of it is determined by. Um, what we think happened, not based off of what we what we actually witness happening. So one of the things that we witness happening whenever a flood occurs is the rising up of material. So let's talk, for instance, about fossils. Fossils of sea creatures high above sea level due to ocean waters having flooded over the continents. We find fossils of sea creatures in rock layers that cover all the continents. For example, most of the rock layers in the wall of the Grand Canyon. You look at the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is continuous rock layers, continuous fossils. Now, you say that happens over a vast majority of time. How would you know that unless you were there to see it or it was studied over that amount of time? You can't just sit there in the 1900s or the 2000s and say, this is how it happened. You weren't there to witness it. You don't know. So we have to actively show how it happens. How do we actually see this happening today in our time frame? And that is with a flood. Rapid burial of plants and animals. We witness this all over the world. We find extensive fossil graveyards, as noted in the scientific community, uh, and equal... What? Uh, Equist... Diddly, I'm not very good at reading. I forget. I don't know what that word says. Preserved fossils. For example, billions, billions uh, of nautiloid fossils are found in a layer within the red wall limestone of the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is a great resource for talking about the actual flood. This layer was deposited catastrophically by a massive flow of sediment, or mostly lime sand. The chalk and coal beds of Europe and the United States and the fish, insects, and other fossils all around the world testify for a catastrophic destruction and a fast burial. Science does not look at, at all of these different rock layers and, and the, the layers that we find of all these different fossils under the ground, all these oil deposits that come from the decaying things of trees. You find trees growing way underground that are embedded in the rock. That doesn't happen over the course of millions of years. That can happen instantly by a flood. We see this all the time. We find rock layers that have been traced all the way back to or rather across continents, even between continents, and physically features in those uh, strata indicate that they are depositing rapidly. Now you say false, but there's actually plenty of proof to back this up. For example, 
The Tepeat Sandstone and Redwall Limestone of the Grand Canyon can be traced across the entire United States up to Canada and even across the Atlantic Ocean to England. The chalk beds of England, the White Cliffs of Dover, uh, I think it's called the Cote d'Ivoire is what it's called, uh, can be traced across Europe and the Middle East and also found in the Midwest of the United States in Western Australia. Inclined sloping layers, uh, sandstone of the Grand Canyon are testified 10,000 cubic miles of sand being deposited by huge water currents within just days. So if it can happen within just days, I'm pretty sure it can happen in, you know, just a couple of days, like the, the Bible said it happened. Um, sediment that's transported long distances. We find the sediment in, in those widespread, rapidly depositing rock layers have a, uh, have to be eroded from distant sources and carried long distances by fast moving water. For example, the sand of the Coconino sandstone of Grand Canyon in Arizona had to be eroded to be transported to the Northern portion in which is now the United States or Canada. Furthermore, water current indicators such a ripple, such as ripple marks, preserved in rock layers, uh, show that for 300 million years, water currents would consistently flowing from northwest to southwest across, excuse me, all of North America and South America, which of course is only possible over weeks during a global flood. Let me read that one more time just so everybody understands. Uh, furthermore, water current indicators, such as ripple marks, preserved in rock layers, show that for 300 million years, wa and that's, that's in quotes, 300 million years, water currents were consistently flowing from northeast to southwest across all the North and South America, which, of course, is only possible over weeks during a global flood. Rapid or no erosion between strata. We find evidence of rapid erosion or even no erosion between rock layers. Flat knife-edged boundaries between rock layers indicate continuous deposition of one layer after another with no time for erosion. For example, there's no evidence of any missing millions of years of erosion in that flat boundary between two well-known layers of Grand Canyon. The Coconino sandstone and the hermit for formation another impressive example of a flat foundation or boundary at grand canyon in the red in the red wall limestone and the strata beneath it uh let's see evidence piece number six many strata laid down in rapid succession rocks do not normally bend rocks don't normally bend they break because they are hard and brittle but in many places, we find whole sequences of strata that were bent without fracturing. Whole sequences that are just eh, bent, and they didn't break. Including that all the rock layers were rapidly deposited and folded, which set wet, which still wet and pliable before finally hardening. For example, the Tapit sandstone in Grand Canyon is folded at a right angle, 90 degrees, without evidence of breaking. Yet this folding could only have occurred after the rest of the layers have been deposited. That cannot happen unless all the rest of the layers have been deposited. Supposedly over 480 million years, while the Tapit sandstone remains wet and pliable. None of this can possibly occur.
The other thing, a lot of people say, yes, there's plenty of evidence for a flood, but not a global flood. Okay. Uh, let's talk about, let's talk about the flood in general. Was it global or was it just, you know, small amounts, small amounts of little pieces of water here and there. Evidence piece number one, fossils of sea creatures high above the sea. I'll talk about that. Rapid burial of plants and animals. Okay. Wait, hold on. That's the same thing I just read. Hold on. Um, people will say that uh, there are plenty of of uh, the the. There's so many people out there that. Like, oh, we didn't get our Noah's Ark flood story from truth. We got it from other religions. We got it from other this, other that. Um, let, me, let me go here. Okay, I'd read an article a while a while back that I wanted to read again. Okay, so the Genesis flood versus the flood legends, right? A lot of people say that. Oh, we got we got uh, the Genesis flood is an ancient myth. Uh, ever heard that before? It doesn't take uh, much to show the emptiness of this claim. The idea that we just got it from someone else. A lot of people will say, "Oh, you got it from the Epic of Gilgamesh. You got it from the Epic of Gilgamesh." came from Gilgamesh way before Mo Noah. Okay, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a long poem that describes a divine warning about a coming flood. A man is chosen to build a boat. Animals are gathered. A single door opens into the boat. Heavy rains fall. The man sends up, up a dove and a raven. The boat lands on a mountain. The man offers sacrifices in Thanksgiving. Is this any merit to the claims in the Genesis flood? Or is it just a myth? Right? Perhaps every plagiarized, even plagiarized from the Babylonian account came from Babylon. The best way to answer this question is to get down to specifics. What does the Bible actually tell us about the flood? And how does it compare to the man-made myth? Was Moses describing real events? Because in scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers was all written by Moses. Um, let's see. It talks about Moses. Moses describes real events or simply teaching a moral lesson or parable. If the Bible is God's word, which is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, and his truth, John 17, 17, and the light to guide us, Psalms 1, 19, then Christians ought to be able, with careful study and the aid of the Holy Spirit, to understand what the writer's original intent was. So the book of Genesis, right, was written in the style of historical narrative and is a vastly, and is, is vastly supported, or I'm sorry, vastly superior to any myth. By simply knowing the flood account well, you can show people how it outlines every man-made or outshines every man-made flood myth, including the Babylonian version, most similar to the Bible. Man-made legend or divinely inspired history. The Epic of Gilgamesh, a 12-tablet Mesopotamian epic 
poem was written in the 18th century BC, around two centuries before Moses' birth, during the Hebrew captivity in Egypt. Although the flood account is believed to be a later addition to the poem, the warrior king Gilgamesh had a series of adventures on his quest to fit eternal life, or to find eternal life. At the end of Tablet 10 and all of Tablet 11, he goes to a faraway land to meet up, uh, or rather meet with, Utenasfatim and his wife. Uh, who had long before built a boat to survive a global flood and had killed all of humanity except for the small remnant on the vessel. Much of this information is also recorded in the earlier Academium poem, the Epic of Atrahaphasis, within a few additional details, which we will discuss later. So this poem is just what the title says, an epic. The poem or the poet weaves a fictional tale to ent or entertain his audience, the epic Whenever someone mentions their, their writings as an epic, it's typically in reference to a, a fictional story. That's just history. The text employs lofty poetic techniques expected of such recited fiction, such as easy-to-memorize uh, couplets and stock phrases. No hearer expected that it was to be taken as a word-for-word -word history. That's, that's not how history redeems this. In contrast to the Epic of Gilgamesh, Genesis present, or presents every detail of the flood as a historical rec historical recorded to be taken seriously. The Bible claims to be divinely inspired, and since God cannot lie, we expect all of the historical claims to be true. Unlike myths, the Bible carefully records minute details and the ancient cultures. Uh, <clears throat> such honesty and attention and detail is highly unusual in ancient mythology, but appropriate for true history. As it relates to the flood, the, la the language of Genesis 6 through 9 is so uh, descriptive in the matter of fact and saying the details of what God did and how Noah obeyed God that there is no room for co for considering it allegorical or mythological. Moreover, the rest of scripture, and this is just talking about how we read it. This isn't talking about plausibility yet. This is talking about how we read it. Moreover, the rest of scripture considers the events of Genesis 6-9 to be factual historical. So other people who wrote different parts of the Bible thousands of years later, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, regarded the writing of the, the flood of Noah to be an actual account. So different people in different continents, d hundreds of years later, regarded this to be an actual fact. Jesus mentions Noah as a historical person and the flood to be a historical event. We know Jesus was an actual person. Luke includes Noah. This is all claims, by the way. None of this is actually like proof of truth. This is all claims. Luke includes Noah and the gene genealogy of Christ, Luke 3.37, while Peter twice mentions that Noah built the ark and was one of eight people saved, 1 Peter 3.20. Now we get into the plausibility of this all, okay? Consider the plausibility of the Gilgamesh epic versus the Bible. Plausibility. The god of crafts and wisdom, Enki, warns unifitism, the Babylonian Noah figure, about the upcoming flood and tells him to tear down his reed house and prepare a large boat in the shape of a cube. Yet a cube is not seaworthy and would capsize quickly. To build a boat in the shape of a cube, this has been tested and proven to be unsailable. The boat is built in no more than seven days. So this cube-sized boat that's going to house all these animals is seven days it's built, during which the time uh, Unifistidum also had to gather animals from all over the world. Although the flood lasted only seven days, it still covered the earth. 
After a week of rain, the sea and winds calmed, and the boat grounded to a halt on Mount Nimush. So let me get this straight. The boat was built in seven days. That's supposed to house animals from all over the world. Somehow he got all the animals from all over the world, built the boat in seven days. Him by himself. Built this boat in seven days. This is what the Gilgamesh story tells us. In contrast to Unitefra's ridiculously shaped boat story and the unrealistic short contrast in time, the Bible gives a very reasonable account of all of these particle issues or particular issues. God gave Noah instructions on how to build a rectangular ark so that, or rather, uh, that has been shown experimentally, like I said earlier, this has been shown experimentally via videos to be very seaworthy. They wait it out, they show all that kind of stuff. Very seaworthy. Noah also receives a much greater advanced warning uh, for the flood. Perhaps more than more than a hundred years furthermore, God, not Noah, brought the animals to the ark. So rather than this Unitarianism or the, this uh, Napishtim, let's call him Tim. This guy Tim, the, the, the Gilgamesh version of Noah, Tim. Tim had to go and build this boat in seven days and gather animals from all over the world. He had seven days to do all of this, and somehow he did it by himself. The, the account of Noah says it took him over a hundred years with help to build this. And the animals he didn't have to go get, the animals were brought to him. Now, if you can think for a second that God is real, and you can think that God can do whatever he wants, pretty sure that it makes more sense for God to bring the animals to you than for one man to go get animals from all around the world and then build a big boat in seven days. That doesn't happen. That, that can't happen, okay? The Bible mentions several natural mechanisms behind the drowning of the world, including the breaking open of fountains from great below the surface and the opening up of the floodgates of heaven. Whatever you believe in heaven. It's Genesis 7:11. These mechanisms caused the flood to last over a year, which is much more plausible than seven-day rainstorm described in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So we're to assume that in seven days, a rainstorm for seven days flooded the earth. A man, Tim, Gil Gilgamesh version of Noah, got seven or rather seven days to build this boat that was going to house all these animals from across the world. The earth was flooded in seven days, and then went back down in seven days. Now there's the internal consistency. Internal consistency. We've got to look at consistency in these stories. Are they consistent with each other? The Epic of Gilgamesh may be entertaining, but it lacks internal consistency. For example, the gods attributed or arbitrarily decided to destroy life by a flood. But afterwards, they decided to give Tim eternal life. This fickle or fickleness is typical. Okay? The gods carelessly use their power to wipe out most of humanity without a reason. But then they regret their decision and we discover that they depend on nourishment for their sacrifice offered by humans. Okay? Such inconsistencies make it difficult to find any unidentifying idea that gives any meaning or indeed credence to the myth. So, the gods of the story of Gilgamesh are completely dependent on nourishment for their sacrifice offered by humans. That's how they live. 
These gods carelessly destroy the earth with no reason. There's, there's not a reason given. And then they decide to give Tim eternal life. Yet they can't give themselves eternal life because they need food to survive. The Bible account, by contrast, displays remarkable internal consistency. The whole account revolves around a statement of great significance. But God remembered Noah. Genesis 8.1. Prior to the point of the account, every detail shows step by step how God brings destruction upon the earth while he still provides a way of salvation for Noah after Genesis 8.1. Every detail shows step by step how God brings a renewal of life to the devastating world while he demonstrates his faithfulness to his covenant with Noah in Genesis 6. What is the superior message of these stories? There is a reason over 2 billion people today profess to follow the Bible. While nobody follows the god of Gilgamesh epic. Nobody follows the gods in the Gilgamesh epic. Scripture reveals a god who is infinitely superior and more satisfying to humans yearning than the ancient Near Eastern gods. The contrasts are profound and insurmountable. In the Gilgamesh epic, a human being is the hero and granted immortality by the gods. The gods are sinful, corrupt, and silly. But in the biblical account, God is the hero who preserves humanity. He preserves humanity. He is the one who remembers Noah, Genesis 8.1, and eventually brings an end to the catastrophe. Human beings, by contrast, are the sinful ones. Even the human protagonist, Noah, later falls into drunkenness and shame. Contrary to man-made myths, the Bible gives God and mankind their rightful places. What gods are these? In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Council of the Gods decides to destroy humanity for no better reason than the overpopulation of mortals, at least according to the earlier Akkadanian versions of the myth. The storm god, who originally made man, Enlil, is irritated that humans are too noisy and inferior, or rather interfering with his sleep. That's why. So he leads the Council's decision, but another god, Enki, secretly warns Tim. Once the rain begins to fall, the gods are so terrified that they flee the lower heavens for fear that the storm will strike their own abode. The cowering gods weep as their as they uh, devote, devotees die. I'm sorry, regretting what they have set in motion. When Tim offers a sacrifice to the gods, they gather around the sacrifice like flies. In the early epic of, of, of uh, Arathesis, the famished gods who have not eaten in a week descend and eat upon the offering. The gods are capricious, cowardly, and dependent upon humans for either worship or nourishment because the gods cannot tune out human noise. They have to seek ways to reduce human population. That was the reasoning behind it. How infinitely superior is God regarded in the Bible? In the Bible, what does it say about God? Does it say that God needs nourishment? Does it say that he's famished? The Genesis account makes very clear what is wrong. God judges the entire earth because mankind's sin has corrupted the earth. God is in control of every aspect of the flood. He is not fearful of it, but he uses the elements to ensure judgment and justice. God needs nothing from humans, Acts 17. So the preservation of Noah was not selfishly motivated. While a just and holy God punishes sin, he also chooses to show kindness and mercy. Psalms 8, 4 through 5 and 145, verse 8 through 9. While the Babylonians believed that God made humans to perform their menial tasks, Genesis revealed that God made man in his image 
with the privilege of ruling all stewards over his creation. Once Noah's family disembarked from the ark, they left the ark, God blessed them and told them to refill the earth. In contrast, the gods of Gilgamesh epic threw up cruel new ways to limit human population even after the flood. In every way, the Bible's narrative is superior to the Babylonian myth and legend. The author conveys real history, which happened at a distinct point in time, not the myths of legends, and shows that God planned the event but displayed foresight in preserving people and animals. The Genesis flood narrative directly challenges and discredits the pagan myths of that day. It is hard to escape the conclusion that the author of Genesis knew the Babylonian legend of Tim. After all, Moses, who the Bible attributes or attributes as the author of Genesis, would have had had access to documents from around the world at the uh, Royal Egyptian Library, whether international or not. Um, the Genesis flood narrative directly challenges and discredits the silly pagan ideas. So anyone who accuses the Bible of repeating just another flood myth needs to take a closer look at the flood myths around the world. Uh, anthropologists anthropologists, yeah, have identified dozens so far, but many are filled with fanciful details and share little in common with the Bible. Most similarities are superficial and easy to explain. After all, most cultures have, have access to the Bible, uh, the biblical version of the flood, even without the Bible. A storyteller would likely incorporate many of the same details about the flood. For example, a boat is a good way to escape, and somebody had to survive to retell the story. The only myths that is strikingly similar to the Bible account came from the Babylonians. Or the, this, the only myth that is strikingly similar to the Bible account came from the Babylonians. The Babylonian tablet is dated from the 18th century BC, while Moses wrote Genesis in the 15th century BC. The similarities make sense if both were written near the time of the actual flood later myths. However, have little in common with the Bible indeed. The Chinese myth says that the flood was caused by an argument between a crab and a bird. That is the Chinese myth. It was caused by an argument between a crab and a bird. Christians can boldly declare that the Bible is infinitely better than the myth, as we would expect from its inferior, or rather, from its infallible author, a.k.a. God. You can actually buy a book about the Genesis Flood, the Flood Geology. These books are available, Grappling with the chronological chrono, chrono, Chronology of Genesis. There's so much to Scripture. It explains it so much better. Not only that, but it corresponds perfectly with what we noted the truth to be. It's a huge deal. Point is, guys, this podcast episode has run over an hour long. I appreciate everybody's uh, interest. I appreciate everybody watching. I'm going to go ahead and say peace out to all y'all. I hope you learned something. And if you didn't, well, I'm praying for you. I'll see you guys later.